with me to my father's house, to my father's house, to my father's house. Come and go with me to my father's house where there's joy, joy, joy. Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 6th of February. Today's services are focused around the calling of the first disciples as told in the gospel according to Luke. Our music picks up on this theme as we hear songs about an invitation to follow. We'll also hear from the Terminator himself Arnold Schwarzenegger as he gives us his own unique take on discipleship. A few notices. This week's on-site service includes our monthly celebration of the Lord's Supper and all are welcome. Tea plus chat plus prayer will be at the home of Marjorie Jones at 2.30 on Tuesday this week. Who Let the Dads Out takes place on Saturday from 10 to 11.30. This is our toddler group for dads, granddads and any other male relatives really and their preschool children. Our next baptismal class will be starting soon. If you're interested in exploring baptism with no strings attached, then do please speak to me. The February Church magazine is now available as a hard copy or on the church website. And now our call to worship, some verses from Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with all my heart. I will sing your praises before the gods. I bow before your holy temple as I worship. I praise your name for your unfailing love and faithfulness. For your promises are backed by all the honour of your name. 
As soon as I pray, you answer me. You encourage me by giving me strength. Every king in all the earth will thank you, Lord, for all of them will hear your words. Yes, they will sing about the Lord's ways, for the glory of the Lord is very great. Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. Though I am surrounded by troubles, you will protect me from the anger of my enemies. You reach out your hand, and the power of your right hand saves me. The Lord will work out his plans for my life, for your faithful love, O Lord, endures for ever. Don't abandon me, for you made me.
Here we are, Lord, with our gifts and our gaps, our successes and our failures, our enthusiasm and our doubts, our passion and our unworthiness. Help us to hear your call and to have the courage to say, Here I am, send me. We adore you, O extraordinary God, who came among us as the Son of Man, miraculous in your birth, miracles marking your passage through the world, casting your nets to draw us in, and drawing out the extraordinary in us. We praise and adore you. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 5, beginning at the first verse. One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats on the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it's deeper, and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realised what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, O Lord, please leave me, I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid, From now on you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. We're probably fairly familiar with the story of how Jesus called his disciples to follow him. Jesus, walking along the shore of Galilee, comes across the two sets of brothers, Simon, Andrew, James and John. And then Jesus calls to them and they drop what they're doing, fishing and mending nets, and they followed him. But Luke's story, while it involves the day-to-day lives of the fishermen, is different from this fairly straightforward account of Jesus calling and the four men following. Last week we looked at the occasion when, Luke tells us, Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth and read from and expounded the scriptures in the synagogue. This in itself was not remarkable, but when Jesus told them that the reading was fulfilled in him, the people began to feel indignant that this local chap, Mary and Joseph's boy, the local carpenter, should make what they believed were blasphemous claims for himself. In Luke's account, this story follows pretty much straight after he tells us about Jesus resisting temptation in the wilderness. However, Luke does also say that Jesus had already begun to teach in other villages around the Sea of Galilee before he returned to Nazareth. Luke next tells us that Jesus went back to Capernaum, where his reception had been much better, and again he went to the synagogue. There Jesus found a man who was possessed by a demon. But Jesus simply ordered the demon to leave the man, 
and the synagogue crowd was astonished at the authority that this man had over evil. After leaving the synagogue, Jesus called into Simon Peter's house. His mother-in-law was sick, although it's not altogether clear whether this was why they'd come to Simon's house or whether it came up in conversation while Jesus was there. But however it happened, Jesus healed her. He rebuked the fever, much like he'd rebuked the demon at the synagogue, and the result was the same. The illness left her. So, having shown his power over evil, Jesus had now shown his power over disease. Of course, news of what had gone on in Capernaum spread like wildfire, and everybody brought out their sick family members for Jesus to make them whole again. So having started fairly slowly with Luke telling us about Jesus teaching rather than doing miracles, we've moved on apace as the miracles have come thick and fast until we reach our story today when we are told Jesus was standing and preaching near the seashore. The way Luke describes what happened, this may well not have been the first time that Jesus preached in this location and the crowds were pressing in on him. One gets the feeling that it was Jesus who was nearest to the water's edge and that the people were pressing against him so that he was being moved nearer and nearer to getting wet. But then an answer presented itself. A couple of fishing boats were moored nearby and the fishermen were cleaning their nets after their night's work. Jesus seems to have commandeered the boat belonging to Simon, the man who already knew something of Jesus because Jesus had visited his home and had healed his mother-in-law's fever. So Jesus continued to address the crowds from the boat, which Jesus had Simon Peter put out a little way from the water's edge. This picture of Jesus teaching from Simon Peter's boat is one that's been seized upon by those with some interest in the place of the church in God's plan of salvation. A boat has become a metaphor for the church, and some have suggested that it's no accident that it was Peter's boat that Jesus chose to use as a floating pulpit. Could this support the idea of the church as the unique place in which the word of God is preached? And of course, some scholars from the Roman Catholic tradition have pointed to the fact that this pulpit was Peter's, the first of the bishops of Rome and the first wearer of the fisherman's ring. And when we come to the famous promise of Jesus about fishing for people, in Luke's version of the story, it is to Simon Peter alone that Jesus makes this promise claiming for Peter his special place in God's plan of salvation for the world. Some of the background to what happened after Jesus had finished speaking is implied and not expressed until later. The previous night's fishing had clearly not gone well, and we must presume that there were lots of long faces among the fishermen as they cleaned their nets. But the main evidence would presumably have been the lack of fish for sale on the seashore. This background is necessary for the story to make sense. The miraculous nature of what happened next is dependent upon the poor outcome the last time the nets were put out. Knowing what had happened the night before, Jesus told Simon to take his boat out again, let down the nets, and now expect a catch. Presumably, carpenters didn't make a regular point of telling fishermen where they should fish, any more than a fisherman would think of telling a carpenter how to cut a piece of wood. But Simon Peter, while protesting to Jesus, treated him with respect and addressed him as master. This is not one of the most common forms of address that's used towards Jesus. More often he will be called rabbi or teacher. And indeed it's only Luke who uses this particular Greek word that we have here translated as master. 
although other words are sometimes used as master, this word that Luke uses has the particular sense of one who stands in authority. Boss, something like that. So already, before he's been called to be a follower of Jesus, Simon Peter has acknowledged the authority that Jesus, the boss, holds. This authority is confirmed in that, despite his protestations, Simon Peter does what Jesus instructs and puts out into deep water, where the catch is so great that he has to call on the other boat to come out and help take some of the fish, to avoid capsizing his own vessel. Simon Peter's reaction is perhaps surprising. We might expect amazement or excitement, but what we get from Simon Peter is a sense of his own unworthiness. It isn't that Simon Peter was astonished. Luke suggests that this is the explanation for his reaction. It's that his astonishment is not suggestive of the incomprehension that we often find when the disciples or the wider crowd are witnesses to what Jesus has done. Rather, the opposite is true. Simon Peter's astonishment leads him to a new level of understanding with regard to who Jesus is. And this new understanding leads, as happened with Isaiah, to the realisation of Simon Peter's own unworthiness and his falling on his knees before Jesus. The story ends as Jesus said to Simon Peter that he need not fear because this new insight would lead to a new life for Simon Peter. From that time on, he would be catching people. The words that Luke reports Jesus having used here are not quite the same as those that we find in Mark's and Matthew's accounts. There, the comparison is more directly made between these men's former career and their future calling, when Jesus said that from that time they would be fishing for people. This latter expression has become part of Christian culture, and some of you will remember singing in Sunday school that song, I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. Fishing for people seems a good thing to do, until we remember what happens when fish are caught in nets or on a hook. They flap around on the deck of a ship, fighting for breath until they die. Fishing for people is an expression that's also used in the Old Testament, but there the negative connotations are intended, and these people are being fished to be brought to judgment. Is that what Jesus intended? I would say not, and certainly that's not the case in the version that we find here in Luke. We read Jesus saying to Simon Peter, and just to him in Luke's version, don't forget, that from now on he would be catching people. And the word that Luke uses is an interesting one because it has within it the idea of catching alive. So we have potentially a different understanding of what it means to fish for people. It means to catch them alive and so to save them. This is a passage that's full of intriguing ideas, but if our reading is to be more than simply an intellectual exercise, what does it mean to us? I said earlier that we would think again about the initiative to follow Jesus as coming from those who followed. I think that we find Jesus to be fairly diffident in his call for others to follow him. He actively discouraged people not to tell others about him. He demurred when some showed signs of wanting to follow him. He could have, but didn't say to Simon Peter, to follow him after he healed Simon's mother-in-law. And here Jesus only made his call when Simon Peter made his confession of unworthiness in Jesus' presence. Perhaps we have here a confirmation that while it's not God's will that any should perish, 
His mission does not seem to involve high-pressure tactics, and he waits for us to make our response before his call to follow comes. Like the story that Jesus told about the son who left home, our Father waits for us to turn to him, and then he will welcome us with arms opened wide, because he wants us to live. It's a while since I've mentioned the Terminator films in one of my sermons, so it must be about time. No pun intended, if you know what I mean. In the first Terminator film, Arnold Schwarzenegger's cyborg character is a cold-blooded killing machine. However, in the sequel, he has been reprogrammed and is now here to save humanity. In the picture on your service sheet, you'll see a screenshot of the famous moment when the Terminator reaches down to a frightened woman. It's reminiscent of that story Jesus told of the Samaritan who came across the wounded Jewish man. The woman expected the Terminator to kill her. Instead, he offered to save her and said that immortal line, Come with me if you want to live. I thought you might like to hear Arnold Schwarzenegger reprise his famous quotation when he got himself vaccinated last year. All done. Thank you. You're welcome. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, I just got my vaccine, and I will recommend it to anyone and everyone. Come with me if you want to live. A second point is related to the miracle that Jesus performed. I believe that Jesus calls us to put our nets out into deeper water. The deeper the water, the harder it is to see. And we're sometimes called to sail uncharted seas and go to places that we do not know and to do things for which we might think we are unprepared. But God does not call us to do that which we cannot do. And just as he was with Simon Peter as the nets went down on what seemed to the fishermen to be a fruitless exercise, so he also is with us. So go out into the deep, try the deep waters, because if this is where God wants you to go, he will be with you. A third and last point also concerns this miracle. This is not the way that Jesus calls his disciples in any of the other three gospel accounts. What do we say about this story of Luke, in which these four fishermen responded not to the call of a man who passed them while they were working and who said for them to follow him? How do we respond to this story, which is very different from the other three versions, in which no miracle occurred? Do we say that Matthew, Mark and John didn't know this story? Or do we say that they were trying to keep their account brief and more to the point? Surely they didn't imagine that including a miraculous event such as this would have turned their readers away from Jesus. After all, they weren't writing for science-savvy moderns like us, for whom the miraculous can often seem, well, just a bit iffy. Some years ago, I read Jan Martel's book, Life of Pi. I must admit there were times when I thought I might give up on it, but it was just about worth keeping going for the end. The story concerns a young man who was the only survivor from the ship that was carrying him and his family to a new life in Canada from their home in India. Pai was the only human survivor, but he shared the lifeboat with an orangutan, a hyena, a zebra and a tiger called Richard Parker. Before long, for reasons that are fairly obvious but are best not spelt out, the tiger was the only animal left and the boy travelled with him for 227 days. 
although to some readers it seemed much longer, until he arrived via an island on the coast of Mexico. There he was questioned about the shipwreck by some Japanese inspectors for the purpose of their making a report for insurance purposes. Pye told the story of how he survived for 227 days with a tiger in his boat and how the animals killed and ate one another. But the inspectors didn't believe him. Pye argues for a while. He says, If you stumble at mere believability, what are you living for? Isn't love hard to believe? What is your problem with hard to believe? They plead that they're simply being reasonable, and he says that reason is a good thing, excellent for getting food, clothing and shelter, that nothing beats reason for taming a tiger. But be excessively reasonable, and you risk throwing out the universe with the bathwater. They tell him that his story is unlikely. So is the lottery, yet someone always wins, he responds. They say they like his story, but they want to know what really happened. So, he says, you want another story. You want a story that won't surprise you, that will confirm what you already know, that won't make you see further or higher or differently. You want a flat story, a story without animals. So he tells them another story, this time without animals, but a story of an evil man, they agree it's a horrible story, and although it explains nothing more about the reason for the sinking of the ship, they find it easier to believe, and so they do believe it. They even agree that the story with the animals is the better story. It's just that they find it hard to believe. Thank you, says Pi, and so it goes with God. Well, is that how it goes with God? We sometimes say that the world in which we live has embraced spirituality, but has turned its back on religion. Do we also live in a church which has embraced religion, but which has turned its back on that which is spiritual, otherworldly and supernatural? Our God is an otherworldly God. He experienced our world when he lived the life and died the death of a man, and neither has he now abandoned our world, in that he indwells us with his spirit, and with us, without us, and sometimes despite us, his kingdom grows within us, all around us. But does that make God worldly? No. We are tempted just as Jesus was tempted, but we are tempted by the rationalism of our world. We are tempted to ask, what really happened? We're tempted to believe the flat story. Not the story without animals, but the story without the miraculous. Most of those who came to Jesus came and were filled with wonder. They marvelled at what they saw and it changed their lives. Our lives can be changed by reason. But don't let us lose the wonder. Don't let us turn our backs on that which is otherworldly because there too is God. And, I say again, let us tell others of our wonder, as we witness to what he's done for us, and done for the world in which we live.
Let us pray. Lord, we confess that we fear getting in too deep. When we feel you drawing us to you, calling us to leave the safe confines of life as we know it and plunge into the depths of life with you, we're afraid. What will you ask of us, Lord? For we are ordinary people. We have no tongues to talk in clever parables. We have no miracles to perform. And the fact is, we're quite content as we are. We're happy to serve you from the wings. We don't want the spotlight. Yet you have drawn us into your story and you call us to be all that we can be. We confess that we are afraid of our potential, afraid to unleash your power within us. 
Forgive us and grant us the courage to overcome our fears and follow you. But our Father in heaven forgives us for being less than we might be, for following half-heartedly when his Son calls, skulking in the shadows, afraid of the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us and the world, and to bring out the extraordinary within our nature. Accept then this forgiveness and this call to shine. Step from the shadows now and follow. In Jesus' name. Amen. Holy God of all power and saving grace, we bring before you our prayers of intercession. We pray for all those feeling out of their depth at this time, all who are fearful and swimming against the tide of oppression. We bring before you those caught up in the ever-rising tensions between Russia and Ukraine. We ask that you place your hand on the volatile situation and bring about peace and harmony. Holy God of all power and saving grace, may those desiring power over others bow to your surpassing power and might. Diffuse the situation, we pray. We pray for the people of Afghanistan, the families struggling to cope and find money for food, the girls no longer being educated, the women no longer able to work freely. We pray for all hopes and dreams squashed by those yielding power. Holy God of all power and saving grace, sustain them. Bring justice to all suffering at the hands of others. We pray for all in this country, for all in our local communities as we attempt to return to some normality as the COVID restrictions come towards an end. We pray for the lonely, those still anxious about mixing with others. We pray for those who've lost their work, those who've been bereaved. Holy God of all power and saving grace, bring peace and joy, bring blessings in abundance. We pray for all who are in leadership, in parliament, in our local councils and communities, for all leaders of the church, all those who in ministry sharing the gospel in whatever form. We pray for the weary, those feeling out of their depth and those who are sinking beneath the heavy load of responsibility. Holy God of all power and saving grace, lift them. Imbue them with your grace, renewing their strength and commitment. May all lead with transparency, integrity and compassion, following your truths. God of all power, we bring before you Her Majesty the Queen, who on this day, the 6th of February, 70 years ago, in Kenya, heard the news of the death of her father, King George VI. So this day marks 70 years of her accession to the throne, a historic milestone. 70 years in which she's endured the ups and downs, joys and sorrows of life's story, personal and public. And yet she remains steadfast in her faith. We pray strength and good health for our Queen. Holy God of all power and saving grace, may your truths uphold her majesty throughout her reign. Holy God of all power and saving grace, may we all feel your sustaining hand, helping us through whatever lies ahead. Lead us as we are caught up in your story and tread the path laid out for us. Amen. 
The disciples faced many ups and downs when they walked with Jesus and when they walked with God's Spirit after Jesus had gone to his Father. Those ups and downs are reflected in our own experience of life, and our final song exactly describes that. But before that, a final prayer. Lord of the deep, 
be with us when we feel out of our depth. Lord of the waves, send us where we are most needed. Lord of the shore, bring us safely home. In Jesus' name, amen.